Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. This episode is titled, From 40K to 10K, The Evolution of Groceries. We are joined by Arthur Ackles of Roche Brothers Supermarkets and Brothers Marketplace and Andrew McQuilkin of BHDP. They will discuss their 15 years of working together and the decades of experience in the retail and grocery industries. Arthur and Andrew share their insights on the evolution of groceries, why smaller formats are becoming a trend, and how soft and hard data can influence profitable ROIs. I am your host, Brian Trainer, workplace strategist for BHDP, and I'll let our guests introduce themselves. Okay, my name is Arthur Ackles. I'm the Vice President of Merchandising and Buying at Roach Brothers and Brothers Market Supermarkets. I'm also heavily involved in store design and branding, as well as marketing in general for our companies. I've been with Roach Brothers for 33 years. I started as a bagger and worked my way up through the system. I've had positions in construction and maintenance, marketing. I started our e-commerce platform, went over to the perishable side and learned how to run deli seafood and specialty cheese, which kind of led me to our, my current position. That's quite a trajectory, 33 years. That's well, amazing. Well, fortunately, worked for a very good company and good family. And when I graduated college, it really made sense to stay here and see what came about because I knew it was a good company, a good local company, and turned out pretty well so far. So. And then um, we also have Andrew McQuilkin. So I'm Andrew McQuilkin. I lead the retail practice at BHTP. I've been planning and designing and strategizing retail spaces for over 30 years. I've known Arthur for over 15 years now, partnering on their concepts. Almost half of his career, right? <laughs> All at Roche Brothers. Thanks for putting it that way. No. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating, though. How have you known him for so long? Where did you meet? So about 15 years ago, I was asked as the marketing director to kind of lead up an effort to really redesign our stores. And I did a lot of research and found Andrew through some recommendations. He came well sought after, and we liked working with Andrew so much, I followed him to BHDP, and we've had that relationship since, so. That's fantastic. Where is Roche Brothers? Are you regional, global? Tell us more about Roche Brothers. Yeah, so Roche Brothers is a family-owned supermarket owned by second-generation Rick Roach. Pat and Bud started our company back in 1952. We are in the greater Boston area only, so all of our stores are probably within a 70-mile distance at the most, and a majority of them are probably within 40 to 50 miles. We have two brands that we operate currently. One is our Roach Brothers stores, which is kind of the stores that have been here from the beginning, and they're in general, you know, a 40,000-square-foot supermarket which focuses on customer service, community involvement, really clean stores, organized, and really involved with our customers. Our Brothers Marketplace brand, which has been around now for six years, was developed based on the fact that it's getting hotter and hotter in a very competitive northeast area to find 40,000 square foot locations that are isolated from competition. So we developed a small store format called Brothers Marketplace, which has allowed us to put a 10 to 15,000 square foot high-end perishable oriented supermarket into smaller neighborhoods that are somewhat insulated from competition and allow us to be part of the neighborhoods that we put the stores in. You say a lot of community and neighborhood. I want to come back to that. But you're talking about two formats. You've got 40,000 square feet and then 10 to 15,000. So those are vastly different sizes. So when you're thinking about 
either building a new location or starting with a small location. When you're thinking about that small format, where do you begin? What's different about that than the 40,000? Certainly the focus in those stores are on, on fresh and on perishable. The, the grocery departments are, are much smaller and a much less part of the penetration of those stores. And again, some of that philosophy was built on the current market, which is a lot of grocery and center store is tending to go away to some of the online retailers. We're certainly putting up a good fight, as is the industry as a whole. But the fact of the matter is that there is other ways that consumers can buy center store now that they're comfortable with that weren't here 10 years ago. On the perishable side, though, a majority of our customers still want to feel, touch, smell, taste their perishable items. We have a big focus on Brothers in that area, and then we even really curated even more by making sure that where we can, a majority of those items are either local or hyper-local, and working with the communities that we're in, with even some of the vendors that are existing there now, to be part of our store rather than competition and make sure that the community understands that, you know, we're not there to put anybody out of business. We're there to be part of the community and to kind of join hands with some of the best bakeries or some of the best entrepreneurs or curators in that area to provide a better service for the community overall. So I don't know the difference between local and hyper-local. Yes, local for us and for our customers in the Northeast would be the New England area. We did focus groups years ago to try to determine what exactly did the customer see as local. We said, okay, Boston area, keep your hands up if that's local, and they kept them up. Then we went Massachusetts, and they kept them up. And then we said New England, and we, they kept them up. And the minute we got out of New England, their hands went down. So that really determined what local meant to our customer anyways. Hyperlocal is working with people within one to three miles of your retail operation. So again, when I say hyperlocal, if, there, if there's a town that we go into and there's a really great baker that our customers love over the years, is really trying to partner with that baker. You know, they might be right down the street. Rather than hurting their business or hurting our business because they're so strong, you know, can we work with them to say, listen, we're part of this community. You're part of this community and you've been here a long time. You know, we want you to continue to be part of it. Do you want to sell some of your product in our store? I think a, a good example of that, Arthur, is when we went out and we did our town audit for that Duxbury location, we went places. We went to the bakery. We went to the sandwich shop. I remember bringing back some cards and giving it to you. He said, okay, we think this baker is better than the other baker, you know, having done our own research, tasting. But I thought a really good hyper-local was the Green Dragon Oysters that we did for Duxbury, right? The one where they work with you to brand it. Yeah, that was a really excellent program. And it's funny because we took that program and it became a hyper-local program, but it was also a, a very generally local program for us. And the town of Duxbury is a seaside town, and we were able to work with a very small producer of oysters in that area that was willing to private label an oyster brand with us, the Green Dragon Oyster, which is the name of the high school mascot in Duxbury. So not only did we have that oyster available in Duxbury, but it became such a big hit that we actually pushed it out to all of our stores, even Roach Brothers, and gave it a different name. That's a great story of how we were able to develop a relationship with a, with a hyper-local entrepreneur or a company that existed right now. And rather than, again, hurt them or hurt their business, we made them part of ours and probably helped their business. See, one of my questions was, you know, as a retailer, how important is connecting to the local community? I see how you've done it. Why is that so important? Why, why is that an important value for Roach Brothers? Well, again, it's, it has been since day one. Pat and Bud started their meat market back in 1952 in Rosendale Square, and they wanted to be the go-to neighborhood market at that time. 
And it's kind of really what inspired us to go back to the Brothers Market brand was getting back to our roots of always being a heavily involved local community retailer. You know, they started that culture and it's continued throughout our 67-year history. It's helped us build some amazing relationships with our customers, with the political crowd, with churches, with schools. It's really what it's all about. And it, I think overall it helps our brand because our customers look at it as not just a supermarket, but an integral part of the communities that we're in. And they want to support that. I think when we developed some of these ideas for you along along the years here, one of the first times you had me come in, we sort of un- tried to understand what your local pressures were and the national guys who were coming in and, and you know, affecting some of the perceptions of, of what you were doing, even though you may have not been changing a lot. And what was interesting is I posed those questions to you, what do you own and what do you stand for? And you were able to clearly tell me exactly what Roach Brothers was about and why you were different in auditing and understanding how some of these other retailers were coming into your market, they were doing local, which you were talking about what you owned as, as being part of the community, and they're just putting up black and white photos of the old downtown pretending that they've been there for 100 years. We realized this was something that you could really get out there if we told that story within the store locations. So we've worked really hard to tell the family story and the local story so that you can own it. Yeah, you're 100% right, Andrew. I mean. We're not just about putting pictures on the wall, right? We built a skating rink in West Roxbury. We built a boys club with Pat and Bud's name on it. We've built multiple baseball fields within the communities that we're in, never mind all of the donations and contributions to local sports teams and little leagues and soccer teams, you name it. We've certainly not been bold about putting our chests out about it. That's Pat and Bud and Rick's way. But the communities that we're in, know that we're involved because they see our name sponsored on everything and they see our names on buildings that have nothing to do with our retail outlets and have totally to do with supporting the community and being a resource for the communities. It's interesting because when when we go out and and Arthur introduces us to a a location that they're thinking about, we'll go in and like I said, we do a a, a community audit. We kind of go out there with fresh eyes to try to understand the culture, the art, how people think about who they are and what they stand for as well locally. And we'll turn around and we'll weave their story into the Brothers Marketplace story. So when we do graphics, which are usually very different from store to store based on that locale as an inspiration, we'll put hidden lore within the graphics that only the true locals will know. (laughs) So like for Duxbury, remember we we did the Tree of Knowledge. And this was a tree that they used back in the 1800s that the postmaster didn't want to go through the Duxbury Hills and all the marshes to get to people's houses, so they put all their mailboxes on one giant oak tree. And it was up there for over 150 years, and eventually burnt down at the turn of the 19th century. So what we did is we found that story. It was actually online, too. After going to the Historic Society, we learned even more about it. So we made sure it was represented in the store. So only the true locals know what is being talked about. And we've done this in each location that we've done a Brothers Marketplace. is something that's just special to them that we've weaved into the store to pay homage to, to the locals. And I think that's what makes working with BHTP and our store design so successful is that market survey that we do or that you guys do for two or three days before we even get into putting stuff on paper is really important. So, you know, BHTP will go in, spend some time in the market, visit local shops, eat at local restaurants, get a feel for what's important in that town, and then we really try to bring that importance back into the store itself so that, like Andrew said, the locals that understand the lore of that area 
really feel like we've really just attached to the community. And we do that for each location, particularly with Brothers, because Brothers mostly are in neighborhoods and neighborhood areas that a local grocery store is really important to them. But it really shines when you go into each of our Brothers locations. Although there's a common branding theme, they're very different in terms of their design, layout, and flow because we've done that with the local community in mind that we're serving at that time. I had that question is how do you balance between community identity and brand identity? But I think you just answered that before I could even ask the question, which is fantastic. Part of it is that, you know, Arthur and his team are doing a lot of programmatic research and merchandising research to understand, you know, what the offering is and what the, the P&L, mm-hmm. what kind of businesses and how much of each business would need to be within that space. But as we do our audit, we'll come back after talking to a lot of the shop owners and a lot of the other uh, people in the community and we'll say, well, there might be two or three opportunities of some offering that's not available that you know, we'll propose those ideas back to Arthur and his team, and they'll say, okay, that, that sounds really good. Let's, let's keep the original deli counter that used to be in this old department store that was abandoned because oh, wow. people remembered it. So when we did our first Brothers Marketplace, there were people coming in and sitting at this deli counter <laughs> that we created, this grill counter, and there was grandparents bringing their grandchildren and telling them stories of when they used to come and sit at this counter oh, wow. 50 years ago. For Duxbury, we kind of understood the weekend crown that was at this location. It's almost a resorty feel to this space right by the seaside. Arthur's team realized that beer and wine is really important. <laughs> the people who are coming in on Friday afternoon trying to beat the traffic are going to fill up. So we paid special attention to creating a, a design and a look just for beer and wine to kind of even separate it out. Make it even more special since it's important to everyone. You have a lot of history with Roche Brothers. Has consumer thinking as a retailer, has how people shop changed how you approach the stores, or are people being drawn more to the way you're doing it? We are probably in the most volatile time I can ever remember when it comes to change in the supermarket industry, and and particularly in, in the Northeast. We used to have three or four major competitors, Stop and Shop, Shaw's, and us, right? And we could really hold our head high as the kind of high-end retailer of the group, and we found our white space in that area. But as time has gone on, not only have consumer behavior changed, but the market has changed quite a bit. With the introduction of Amazon and online shopping, it certainly changed the entire market, especially in Center Store. In the Northeast, we now have, if I remember correctly, 40 supermarket brands within a 100-mile stretch of Boston encompassing over 460 supermarket locations. That is an insane amount of people selling groceries. That doesn't even include the CVSs, the Walgreens, the Mobile on the Runs, the HelloFreshes, the Meal Kit Solutions that are all selling food as well. And we're also having a major boom in restaurants in the Boston area as well that, again, are another option for food for our customers. So it really has changed the dynamic of You just can't be a normal supermarket. You have to really think about how you're going to approach how customers are shopping today. We just came off some focus groups for our new Watertown store that the BAP team is working with us on as well. We have to think differently. The consumer, it's funny, they don't necessarily care as much about the foo-foo stuff. (laughs) They want a good shopping experience. They want a convenience. They're not really interested in technology unless it makes their shopping experience easier. And we look at it that way as well. If technology doesn't make it more convenient for the customer, 
or give us a specific return on investment, like, say, self-checkouts or monitoring our customer traffic where we can learn things. We're not going to do it because there's so many different options that are out there, but not all of them really are as important to the customer as sometimes we like to think. So they want a good experience. They want quality food. They want good price, right? They want a fair price because they have a lot of options. It definitely, on a daily basis, is different than the opinion I may have tomorrow on what's important because it's changing so, so fast that it's hard to keep up with sometimes. The millennials are no longer even as complicated as I think we originally thought they were. It's the Gen Zs and the the ones coming up that are even harder to understand. So it all impacts what the grocery store tomorrow will be. And I think we're still learning that on a day-by-day basis because it's changing so quickly. I think back when I started my career um, over years ago, (laughs) retailers owned location and they owned selection. Certainly the larger retailers and grocers in particular. And then when people started to move further out from the cities to still own location, the retailers started to move out there as well. Right, so they can own those locations. But if you think about today, retailers don't own location. With Amazon and all the online offerings and everybody else getting into the business. And then when it comes to selection, again, online beats all selection. You have the world at your fingertips. So what really happens, the control is switched from the retailer to the consumer. And the consumer owns choice. And they're fickle. And they keep changing their minds about what they're looking for and what their choices they want. So really, when it comes down to the, the idea of, of your differentiator, what you own, and getting that into the experience of the space, that's the one thing that you can own over online, is the ability to have those people get into your space and understand what you're about and get it to resonate with them so they can fall in love with your shopping experience and then bring the next generation behind them. It's a difficult challenge because part of it, too, is that it's very competitive, so you've got to deliver the bang for the buck for these experiences. You can't be spending the money everybody used to spend on on certain types of retail experiences. Yeah, Andrew, thanks for that. That goes back to what Arthur was talking about, being a member of the community, showing that, you know, we're here and we care about what's going on here. The impression that I got is that there's like a Roche Brothers is a regional grocery, but a hyper-local design strategy when it comes to branding and marketing. The focus seems to be hyper-local to use your words back on it. But it also sounds like, from the story you said about grandparents bringing people in, uh, it's about creating a memory. That memory has a stronger attachment to people emotionally, so there's a better chance that they're coming, because this is our grocery store. So maybe it's not so much about what Roche Brothers owns, but the community owning the grocer? Is that? You yeah, know yeah. I mean? finding, finding those strategies around what they're drawn to and the things that are particular to them. And so, if, If you're truly a great neighbor, you're going to accommodate and look for what resonates with them, what makes their home special. Nostalgia is a strong attribute, and customers, I don't even know if they always understand or realize how strong it is, but if you can find something to attach to that has resonance with the customer, either historically or importance in their mind, it can be a huge traffic driver. Like Andrew said in our Medfield store, It used to be an old hardware store that was kind of the centerpiece of the community, and in that hardware store, they had a diner. And we felt that when we built that store, keeping that diner was an important piece of the community. And we were right, because it gets a lot of use. Not sure that it always makes money, right? But sometimes you have to have some of those things to get people in your building. But when school breaks every afternoon, that diner is full, and on Saturday and Sunday morning for breakfast, that community is in there reminiscing, talking, 
socializing. So it's definitely become that kind of third space, but more on a nostalgia piece. And then for the younger crowd, it's just a great place to go. When you can get those things, when you can grab those pieces that bring back a memory or, or make people want to come there, they're so valuable. You can't even put into words what they're worth. Yeah, Arthur, that, that's fascinating because one of the things you talked about is how volatile the change is in your market. And that I think a lot of markets are seeing that change is constant. And you're talking about things like nostalgia in an age where data seems to be driving everything and people are always looking for the return on investment. What's the best value? Do you really have an ROI for nostalgia? The other question that I have is how has data in this data era impacted how you look at these stores and what's the data that you're most focused on? We are, um, I would say as a family-owned company, we're certainly out in the same ballpark as collecting data as say an Amazon or even some of our larger competitors. We're trying to get there, but the things that we can do, and actually one of the things that we're working with with BHTP is really understanding traffic patterns in our store. And you know we're doing some work right now where we're, we're monitoring how our traffic is flowing in our downtown crossing store. And that will allow us to say, hey, a lot of people aren't going into this area. What do we need to do to get them there? Or a lot of people go through this area, and we, make, we need to make sure that our most profitable items or items that we're trying to sell at a higher rate are in this traffic flow. Once that data comes back, we'll really be able to make some concrete changes to that store that I think will benefit our overall offering as we go forward. There's data that you get from the consumer, like through a loyalty card. We don't quite have that yet, but we're going to get there. But there's also data that you can gather through new technology, which is what we're doing now, that allows you to set your store up to be more profitable and more effective for the customer flow. So one of the things that we've done, and we've talked to Arthur about it, we've called it cognitive retail design for our retail team. But the idea is that you can actually, in these days, day and age, we're getting from some retailers way too much data or just a pile of data. We're looking for needles in a haystack. So I'm working with Arthur on this downtown crossing store and trying to understand how to drive more shoppers to the back of the store at this one location. We found out from Arthur all the things and what his goals are, what he wanted to accomplish. And then we turned around and we went and observed the store before we did anything, before we made any conclusions or any recommendations, so that we could take my years of experience <laughs> and, and go through and understand how these customers are, are interacting, and a lot of it's common sense obstacles that we think are part of the problem. And so what we did is we created a hypothesis, and we said, okay, these are maybe the five things that we could change that could affect driving that traffic to where we want it to go. And in doing that, what we're able to do with our sensors or uh, view AI sensors that we have from our beauty division is make sure that we're just measuring the data that will validate these ideas as well as show the difference when we make the changes. So instead of collecting reams of data, we're just gathering very specific data. And then we're going to work with Arthur and comparing it with his data that he has, whether it's sales or other things like that, just to kind of show the difference. Our hope is basically we'll be able to prove out that, say, Arthur's profit margins within the test area go up significantly enough that it, it maybe even warrants making changes in other areas that might be similar in what we're trying to do. So if we can tell Arthur that you know in six months it pays for itself, I think that's an easy choice so that you can see your return within a year. That sounds very scientific, too. You know, one thing that we repeatedly make a mistake on as a company, and I'm sure most retailers do as well, is assuming that we know what the customers are thinking and what they want, rather than listening to them to understand what their habits are. So I'm really anxious to see what the results bring back, because my guess is 
we're going to find things that we thought were obvious that really aren't. And the more we're able to follow those patterns of the customers and understand their shopping habits and where those hotspots are, I think the more effective we'll be as a store because we do a lot of things based on our own opinion, which sometimes isn't always right. We look at this data, and because we're being very specific about what we're looking for, we're not going to throw out the anomalies. We believe there's innovation in the anomalies. If we do something, an area increases in sales because we drove more behavior or more people in that area, well, that kind of makes sense. But there might be an area or a section that's even higher in the sales, even though we drove the same amount of people. As store planners and store designers working with Arthur's team, we can figure out, well, what happened there? Did we add signage? What did we do to that area? And then there might be areas where we're driving lots of traffic, but sales went down or stayed even. What else could we do? Is it a visual merchandising thing? Is it a lighting thing? How do we optimize this whole experience by this one trial? It's interesting. We don't throw out the anomalies. One of the things I've learned, because my role here is I'm a workplace strategist, is how excited I am when I'm wrong because I learn something new. Have you ever had any aha moments, Arthur, in your experience, things that maybe you thought were one way were actually another that help drive you to make some sort of decision? When it comes to the aha moments, I, I think we've learned a lot from our brother's model. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned from brothers is one design does not necessarily work in every location that we put it. If we tried to take the Duxbury seaside community design that we put together and put down in that, that into an urban location like Cambridge, it would never work. And vice versa. One of the biggest things I value working with BHTP is that that aha moment is something that we can learn from constantly so that each store that we go into is designed for the community that we're in. Because I think that's really important. In Duxbury, our seating area is grand and comfortable and the lighting's low and the tables are set up more community style. And there's a reason for that. It's a community customer that wants us to go in there, grab their coffee, grab their muffin, sit there for a few hours, communicate and socialize with each other, and really are not in a rush to go anywhere. We love those type of customers. But in Cambridge, our cafe is very different. It's hustle, it's bustle, it's in and out, it's constant use. There's not a lot of people sitting around for two or three hours socializing. They're using it to eat, get on their laptop, get on their iPad, whatever they got to do real quick and get out. Each location really has to be well thought out, especially with the Brothers model, because it's such a neighborhood-oriented brand that it's important that we do go and do all this research to find out what's important to the community so that we can make sure that the store is designed around the habits of that community. As we've developed each of the brothers' locations, that is our aha moment that, hmm, aha, this would not have worked in that next store or that past store. And we got to make sure that we keep that at the forefront of our design moving forward. When we did that community audit in Duxbury, Roach Brothers was looking to put the Brothers Marketplace store into what was an existing grocer that was not doing well. And part of what they had is they actually had a large seating area when you first come in about 20 or 30 feet off the door in the middle of the store. And there was nobody in it. But then when we did our audit and we went around and had lunch and dinner in places, the Dunkin' Donuts was packed. The little lunch room was packed. The bakery was packed. But again, they only had four or five tables each max and everybody was using it. When we came back later to one place that, like Arthur said, people were still sitting there. And then when we did the historic research, being an old fishing town, we were finding this old dry goods store. 
and there were photos, and there was a little history about how the fishermen would all come back in the afternoon and sit around the wood stove and talk for hours. We said, you know what, this community wants these kind of spaces. But it was failing in this grocery store because it wasn't against the window. You couldn't people watch. The offerings weren't really aligned to that seating area. So when we worked with Arthur to kind of lay it out and, and, and maximize this space, and, and it's one of the biggest ones we've ever done, we knew that this is something that they were hungry for. You know, I think to contrast that, and, and the biggest way I can give you an example is in the Duxbury store, we have probably multiple times a week a group that comes in after they're done oyster fishing to have lunch every day. They're there almost every day, every other day, and we see them all the time. Well, in Cambridge, that group is construction workers, but they have very different wants, needs, eating habits, and expectations. So those two locations are so contrasted, even though the brand is strong and solid and consistent, it's very different in how you have to approach each of these stores because an urban setting versus a, a suburban setting or even a seaside setting in, in Duxbury's case can be very, very different when it comes to consumer behavior and what they expect and what they want from their, their supermarket. Arthur, are you aware that that photo that we found, that 120-year-old photo, is actually on the wall in Duxbury of the fishermen around the wood stove? So it's right there where now the new fishermen are. It's right next to the one with the sailboat. So again, when I talked about black and white photos having meaning, these photos have meaning because it's, it's about their culture and their history. Is that another one of your hidden treasures you were talking about before? Yes, and it's not far from the tree of knowledge. <laughs> you know, I can't say that today we sat here and we perfected the small store format. It's a constant flexing and changing and experimenting. And they're not easy stores to run. We probably spend with the five stores that we have out of our 21, we probably spend more time in those five stores than we do on the 16 other Roach Brothers locations we have because they require a lot of massaging, understanding, trying to make them more efficient. We've seen a lot of retailers in our area try it and fail miserably. We've been fortunate in that the locations we have, we've been able to make them work and make them profitable, but there's still room to grow. There's still things I think we have to understand, and obviously we have to listen to the customer. There were some things that we did that we thought were right that we learned over time the customer still wants this, or they like that Potter Roach Brothers, or even though that we don't want to mix the two brands, maybe it's good that people know that the Roach Brothers program that we're running with Brothers Marketplace, that it's kind of an inspiration from Roach Brothers because our brand is so strong here. My point is we're learning as we go, and each store has some learnings that we can grow from, share with a company like BHTP, who's a partner of ours, and work towards what does the next brothers look like. But we're also keeping our eye on the Roach Brothers, because they're a very important part of what we do as well. And to be honest with you, a Roach Brothers is much more profitable than a Brothers is at this point. So when we look at Roach Brothers moving forward, what is that going to look like? Very, very, very competitive market. We think the Watertown store that we have coming up is a great opportunity because it's going to be our first Roach Brothers location that we're not the only anchor of, of the area that we're in or the plaza. We're one of many. There's a, there's a, a movie theater. There's a gap. There's other large retailers. There's 25 restaurants. There's 300 residents. There's 450 office spaces. That's not something that Roach Brothers has ever done. But what I think it helps us do is it helps us build a customer base right at your door versus relying on that, you know, three to five mile radius, which, by the way, within that three to five mile radius, there's five other supermarkets. <laughs> yeah. So we have an inbred customer there that we should take advantage of with all the activity in that plaza. We're looking at 
our Watertown location as maybe the next way we do Roach Brothers moving forward if it's successful. So we're really excited about that. We're also still looking for really great opportunities with Brothers to build that small store, local format that keeps competition away from us. And again, maybe not as profitable as the bigger Roach Brothers, but certainly functional enough that they make sense to be part of what our, our offering is. I think one of the things that we talked about earlier was that balance for Center Store. And when we get under a certain amount, you know, we're really hard pressed to work with Arthur's team on getting the 700 linear feet of Center Store, you know, yeah. the consumables, you know, in the middle, the commodity stuff. And I think the customer still has a certain expectation. I want to go there for fresh. I want to go there because that's somebody who understands me and my community. But I think the Duxbury one was able to bring balance to that and say, okay, but you still come here and do your weekly grocery shopping and get everything you need with these national brands that Roach Brothers is bringing in. Great. Yeah, we, we definitely learned that when Brothers initially started, we were running on four to 500 linear feet of grocery, and that wasn't enough. We found with Duxbury and we're now finding with Weston and Cambridge that the customer wants just a little bit more. Now our grocery departments, I believe Duxbury was almost 900 linear feet. So again, learning is as we go, we listen to the consumer and let them tell us really what that small store format should be and hopefully we'll perfect it in the next couple of years. I think what makes BHCP unique, we've worked with other design firms over the years and I have personally, is that their focus is customer centric. I think a lot of designers will look at a store and, and look at it from you know, the look and feel and design and trying to be on trend, but I think BACP starts with the customer first. And, you know, what is the flow? What areas can we highlight? How do we make this area of the store a place that people want to go? And how do we make their shopping flow more convenient? Because that's ultimately what is most important. Of all the attributes out there of why a consumer shops where they do, if you look back 30 years ago, convenience was number one. Yeah. You know what is number one 30 years later? still convenience and by a big mark almost 60 percent of the customers shop where they do because of convenience wow and when i say convenience that can be convenience by location meaning you know i have a supermarket across the street from me so it's just really easy to go there even if i don't like them that much but i also think about convenience as you know going into a store having a nice flow to shop and being able to shop a shop within a shop and have excitement around the design of your store not having things in the wrong places or sight lines cut down so you can't really get a good feel for the entire store. I think those are the things that BHCP concentrates on first, is making sure that that customer experience is right and then designing around that. If I had to say one thing about BHCP and what I like about working with them, it's that the customer is really the center of what they're, they're trying to design. To be reciprocal, not all our clients think the way Roach Brothers does. We have our, what we call our four pillars, and one of them is that, that they'll you know, understand and leverage our design process, that leadership will play with us and be part of the team, but the idea that the user is at the center. And to have a retailer that really thinks about this is the key for their success, and to have that conversation and dialogue, to continually always doing surveys and focus groups and continually learn from their customer and feed that back to us, that's, that's why we're successful is because they bring that information to us. You put the face on the customer at the center and not a dollar sign. What's the human aspect and how do we interact with people? It's about building that positive experience. So Arthur Ackles, thank you for joining us today. Um, and Andrew, it, it was a joy to have you. And Mr. McQuilkin, a pleasure as always. Well, I'm glad we could tell our story that yeah. we partnered on. It's a fantastic story. Great. Okay, have a great day, everyone. Thank right. you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Bye -bye. Thanks, Brian. 
Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, for this episode, From 40K to 10K, The Evolution of Groceries, with Arthur Ackles, VP of Merchandising and Buying of Roche Brothers Supermarkets and Brothers Marketplace, and Andrew McQuoken, Retail Market Leader for BHDP. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I am Brian Trainer, your host, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.